Welcome to the Thought Leader Podcast. I'm Dr. Kent. And I'm Randy Baker. And on the Thought Leader Podcast, we try to find folks that are going to challenge your thinking, try to challenge your perception of the world. And today we go to Washington, D.C., where we're talking with Richard Marker. And Richard is definitely going to challenge the way you think. Now, I had... I. I've known Richard for some time. I've always admired, he used to have blue glasses. Now he's got really cool sort of yellow glasses and an amazing brand. And you'll see right off the bat, I dive right in on that. And he just he just knows a lot about a whole lot of things. Uh, it's really fun to talk to Richard. So for those of you who remember uh, an event in 1989 in Germany, I'm not gonna say any more about that. Richard was there. Was this a um, like a Blondie concert? It was something like that. Yeah, it was probably <laughs> it was something that sh- that rocked the world. Oh no, Nina. Let's put it that way. Nina, Nina, Nina. Luftballons. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, but it rocked the world, and Richard was fortunate enough to be there at the time. Yeah. So from from being a chaplain to being a philanthropist himself to being an expert around the world on wise giving, I'm a, I'm a big fan of wisdom. Uh, here we are with a little bit of wisdom from Richard Marker. Nice to see you, Richard. You are looking uh, spiffy this morning. Uh, I love the handkerchief. Anything significant about the colors today? Uh, nothing specific about the colors, but um, uh, you know, I I'm also known typically as the bow tie guy. But during COVID, I've decided to relax my. Uh, my um, brand a little bit. So I just stick to the pocket squares and don't wear the bow ties for all of the, uh, the recordings. I hope you'll forgive Love my, that. my uh, relaxed uh, attire. No, it's great. It's a, and also I have to say, um, Randy always talks about the blue suit, the stereotypical um, sort of business blue suit, but the blue suit that you, the blue jacket that you're wearing is not the typical blue which is uh, also a remarkable choice there. Oh, and the glasses. Of course, the glasses are your, are your uh, trademark. So I'm actually curious to start there. So you are an expert on giving. Obviously, we'll get there. Uh, but I'm curious about your, your brand sense, because since I met you, which was quite a while ago now, you've had a really cool brand, the glasses, the bow tie, those things. When did you sort of make a decision to say, I got I to stand out a little bit from these other folks? Or wh- what, is that, what was that for you? Uh, well, I, okay. So the bow tie, it was interesting. I, bought, I, I went to, uh, you're in Pennsylvania, so this means more than Dr. Randy. Uh, I, I, growing up in Philadelphia, I was Quaker educated. And I went to a Quaker prep school. And uh, in those days, I'm old enough that we had to wear ties and jackets every day. Just to put it in perspective, for those of listening, just to get an idea, I graduated high school in 1962. So that in, in, in that era, it was a, a requirement, and it was not uncommon to wear bow ties. So wearing bow ties was always part of my attire, but it was never the one that was exclusive. But what I discovered was that everybody remembered the bow ties, and if I didn't wear a bow tie, people would ask about them. So the older I got, the more I said, you know what, I have to own the brand rather than somehow apologize for it. And uh, the pocket square as well, what can you do? That just goes along with it. 
So that's, uh, that's just a matter of being comfortable with your idiosyncrasies as you get older. Now that's, so not just comfortable with them, but to, to recognize them as a brand early, which before brand was a word, honestly, it was kind of a word, but it wasn't a thing. So uh, how has the world changed around you as you've been in business for so many years? Obviously, now everything's about brand and influence and all this stuff. What's your, what's your view of kind of where things are going and, and so on? So there's two ways of looking at that. On a, one of the things, longer discussion, but one of the things I just, uh, decided some years ago was that life is an art form. Once you look at the world that way, then everything that surrounds you, you have to look at with a certain level of self-awareness. So the furniture that we have has been custom made to a certain degree. I became an autodidact in learning how to do cooking because it was the only art form that used all of the senses. Uh, and, and so that what, what happens is that it's not somehow that, I mean, I wouldn't have used the brand more than X number of years ago, but it's the awareness that somehow you are always defined by the aesthetics around you. And the more aware you are of them, the more conscious of them. And so you, you do things that, that reflect who you are. So I think that's really what's, what's the case. Now, so that's on a personal level. I can't say that about the other thing. I think, uh, look, sometimes branding gets a little silly. Uh, you know, I'm a member of a number of organizations that went through brand re readjustments and came up with bizarre names for the organization that told the world nothing about them. I mean, uh, an organization of which I'm very fond. I'm just going to say this in a positive way, but it's our field. Exponent Philanthropy. It used to be called the Association of Small Foundations. Now, you kind of had an idea what that was about. You may not have had 100%, but you knew what it was about. When, it was, when they went through a branding exercise and came up with a, uh, a title called Exponent Philanthropy, it really tells you very little about what it's about and who's a member of it and what it's to do. Uh, and I think that sometimes you can get so caught up in branding that it takes you away from a direct, uh, direct information. But, you know, there's plenty of people that make a living doing that, and who might have begrudged somebody paying their bills in interesting ways? Richard, I'm, I'm really interested in, in the whole... Well, I'd love you to tell me in a minute about how you work with clients through the philanthropy concept. But a lot of people have this opinion that philanthropy is only for the uber-rich, and yet when we look around at particularly millennials, they have a, a sense of philanthropy very much as part of their selves. How has that changed the the foundations and the organizations that are philanthropic? Are they moving to a younger, uh, less wealthy demographic? So let's go back. You know, one of the advantages I have in this field is that I wear all the hats. I mean, I'm a professor of philanthropy. I'm a, I'm a lecturer about philanthropy. I write about philanthropy and I advise about philanthropy. So you get a little bit of a, a larger perspective of how it all fits together. So if you want to start with, a, with just two sentences, uh, philanthropy was never only about the rich. There was no society in history that didn't have philanthropy that involved everybody. Think about it. The, whether you talk about uh, rent parties in, uh, during the Depression, whether you talk about uh, people coming together to support uh, health needs or homeless needs in anywhere in the world, in Europe, in, uh, in the pre-modern times, there's no place in the world. And, and I've lectured in 40 countries, so I want to say that I never was anywhere where you didn't find that there was grassroots philanthropy. That's the norm. The difference is, and, and let me go further, there have always been super rich. You know, they were oligarchs, they were aristocrats, they were royalty. That always existed. 
I mean, I'm not talking about, and even with, to an extreme degree. Uh, so those, those extremes always existed. What's happened is, as philanthropy has become more institutionalized, especially in a place like the United States, where there's recognition by institutions of those who are able to give more and more of a sense of control, there is a, people often say, oh, I don't have enough to be a philanthropist. Well, one of the things I, I developed about 20 years ago was a, a, a talk, a popular talk called, and I think I wrote an article or two about it, about how to be a philanthropist on $5 a week. Uh, and what I point out is there's no question that you cannot be on the board of the Metropolitan Museum of Art for $5 a week. You're not going to. But I assure you that, uh, so uh, whatever the numbers may be today, but I assure you there's plenty of churches, there's plenty of soup kitchens, there's plenty of local PTAs where your $250 or $300 or $500 is going to make you a player. And the question is, what do you want to do? If, you're, uh, if, if you want to support an Ivy League university, you can give $250. It won't buy you very much, but there's nothing wrong with that. You're a good noblesse oblige player to support your alma mater. But if it matters to you to be involved, you don't have to have Bill Gates kind of money. You can just decide that there's a local neighborhood or association where your $250 can make the difference. And a very real personal example I can give is when, when we were living in New York, there was a startup of an arts organization with a lot of musicians. And they were all doing volunteer kinds of stuff, but they wanted to have a fundraiser. And they got a, a, a space donated and all they needed was $250 to pay for the food. So for $250, we were heroes. We put more money on the table than anybody else, but we enabled this small grassroots startup organization to get a start. You can do that. You don't have to be super rich. And the, now, you, that, can you change the world with $250? No. Can you change some part of the world for $250? Yes. So I, I don't think that this is a matter of, of how deep your pockets are, because once that you measure that, then there's no space for philanthropy, because who's going to have the, how many people have those multi-billion dollars that they can just, you know, write those checks and be done with it? It's a responsibility for all of us. And, and that leads to the other piece, if I can go on another sentence or two. Philanthropy is not just about giving money. Philanthropy is the way in which you use voluntary resources for public good. So if you invest in, a, in an impact investment, we're invested, for example, in some solar fields in Africa uh, and some affordable housing projects here in the Washington area. We've, we don't, if, you, if I define philanthropy with a capital P in the largest sense of terms, we're using voluntary resources to accomplish public good, even though it's not the same as giving to uh, nonprofits or an NGO, which you might understand philanthropy to be a kind of an equivalent of charity. So I define philanthropy in a much broader term where we use all of our resources with a larger commitment to public good, which I think is a more authentic understanding of what the word philanthropy is all about. So I um, had a very interesting client that actually I shared with Randy back a few years ago who spoke about uh, altruism as if altruism doesn't exist. And that really challenged my thinking on it. And what I think is interesting about the way you're talking about giving is is that, uh, you know, you should kind of get something in, in return for your giving, whether it's a good feeling or a 
a letter in the mail or if it's a, if you really need those Penn State tickets, you know, next to the president, right? <laughs> the sort of, there are always, uh, is it quid pro quo or is it altruism or where is it in between? I, I have never met, a, I, I, one of the things that I take issue with, not you personally, but I take issue with people that try to reduce people's motivation to a single driver. People give only because they get a tax deduction or they only because of X, Y, Z or their parent or something like that. There is no such thing as a human being that has a single re reductionist motivation for doing anything. And so to somehow worry about because somebody may do something altruistic that may have other motives as well, uh, a family history, a social connection, a next door neighbor, a loyalty to an alma mater, and then somehow says, well, you see, you have that loyalty, you're not really truly altruistic. It's not true. People are all are complex beings. And there's always multiple motivations that we do anything in our life. So I think that while people like to engage in that discussion, from my perspective, the, the issue is going back to where we were earlier in the discussion is be self-aware about why you're making the decisions you're making. But you don't have to apologize for them. Um, and well, I take issue, for example, I take, take one area that really bothers me when there are people that will try to uh, tell people that they, they should be philanthropic because they can save taxes. That's a terrible reason to be philanthropic, even though if you're doing it and you happen to save taxes, that's fine. But as a, as a primary reason to be philanthropic in the broadest sense, it's a, it's a very dubious and ethically problematic reason to do so. But I don't begrudge somebody saving taxes as long as it's part of a series of motivations. And indeed, every study that's done shows that saving taxes typically comes up as the third, fourth, or fifth motivation for somebody to be philanthropic, even though many wealth advisors and CPAs will, uh, will try to think otherwise. Usually, once somebody's willing to do something good with their resources, that's, that's a side benefit, not a primary benefit. So, Richard, we wouldn't be us if we didn't dig a little bit into where you want to go. So you've, you've got the, your your institute, for want of a better word. Where, where do you want to take that? What do you want to achieve? What do you want your legacy to be? And how does that fit with your business model? Okay. So, uh, um, I mean, the word legacy is an important word because at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I looked in the mirror and said, am I going to end up retired? Uh, I'm 76 years old. And what, that might have been the case. And I realized that I wasn't prepared to retire, but I'm not working for money at this stage. I don't mind making money, but that's not my motivation. My motivation at this stage, I do, I teach philanthropists around the world. I lecture about philanthropy. I write about philanthropy and I advise philanthropy precisely because of a legacy. Because I do believe that it's a field that has been too self-authenticating for too long. Uh, when I uh, when I was heading a fund, I was heading a big foundation that closed in 2002, and I had had no training. I had had experience. I had been CEO of other foundations. I actually came from a philanthropic family, or a grandfather who was a philanthropist, but I had never been trained to do it. And here I was heading a big international corporate foundation. Uh, and when I would talk to other people in the field, they would say, "Oh, you've met one foundation. You've met one foundation." meaning everybody makes their own path, everybody does their own thing. And I decided that, that was the most arrogant, irresponsible thing we could say. Because think about it, as a field, as a sector, we're responsible for billions of dollars. As a sector, we're responsible for an entire sector ourselves, the, non, the NGO sector, the nonprofit sector. 
we're responsible for public policy. We're responsible for advocacy. To somehow say that we shouldn't be accountable in any way, that we shouldn't have a barrier to entry, that we shouldn't be able to demonstrate that we know the laws and the ethics and the, and the abuse of power that can sometimes come along with it, I thought was irresponsible. So I devoted myself, once that foundation closed in 2002, to seeing what I could do about enhancing the education and the sophistication of our field. And so if there's, a, if there's a legacy that I want to come after me, and I hope that I'm just, I know that I'm just one of the people in this field that's trying to make this difference, is that I really want there to be some understanding uh, that, that philanthropy itself has, has, uh, should have standards. It should have ethics. And that people, and, and it should have a, an awareness of what our role is in the world, our unique autonomy in the world, and the, and the inherent responsibility that comes along with that. Our understanding of the limits of what it means to use our resources as part of uh, one of the arrows in the quiver that can make the world a better place. So if, if my legacy, through any of the things I talked about, whether our own money, through the teaching, through the, uh, through the advising, is to make sure that people know how to make good decisions that are informed by the best of what our field is about. One of the things I say a lot, uh, Richard, is nonprofits who are really just clever ways of getting big salaries for the guys who started it. Um, so they, they raise money, they pay themselves a nice salary, they do a little bit of, of good work. How do you feel about creating standards where percentages of of their revenue must be spent on, on their objectives. Okay, so let's be clear. The number of nonprofits that are guilty of that is a tiny percentage. To paint a broad brush with those who abuse the, the nonprofit status is unfair, and it takes advantage of the overwhelming numbers of, of not, only, not only nonprofits and NGOs, but the millions of people that are connected with them that are uh, on whose backs uh, societies uh, depend. So yes, there's no question that people that, are, that abuse fundraising and, uh, and don't properly support the causes that they raise the money on, they should be put in jail. That, that's just irresponsible. It's unethical. We should, we should call them out. That's just not my concern. My concern, frankly, is not that a few people are overpaid, but the, but the many, many people who are underpaid. I care much more about the fact that somebody can be working in a social service organization and has to get a second job so that they can pay their bills, uh, then maybe that the CEO is overpaid by a little bit. It doesn't mean that somebody should be overpaid. It means that's, my, that's not my real concern. And when I know that there's as much attention in the press and much attention to people that are talking about this question with how do we make sure that the people that are really doing the hard work of, of, of uh, keeping the social sector functioning and, on, and, and the homeless people uh, uh, taken care of, and, and people who are food insecurity fed, and people that, uh, that, that don't have health care, to make sure that those underpaid people are being taken care of, then I'm willing to address myself to the very small number of people that are overpaid. So in that scenario, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts where an investment in a social enterprise versus an investment in a, in a nonprofit. I've heard all kinds of different thoughts on this. Obviously, social enterprises have the ability to really grow and, and expand. But I'm, I'm curious from, from your perspective, understanding a whole lot more than I do. Okay. So, I, so actually, it's not funny. I actually, in my blog, I published a piece about that very question yesterday. So you can go read it. 
but that, that's a different discussion. So here's the deal. We need both. What I don't think is legitimate is to say it's one or the other. There are areas where we have undercapitalized and we've under and been under creative and therefore it, it's, it's great proper. Let me take the example I gave before about our investment in solar power in Africa. That's a for-profit investment that's going to pay for itself. And the company that we're invested with is, has contracts in 10 countries right now because there's no infrastructure there. But if it had been 15 years ago, that would have had to be a philanthropic investment and not, a, not a, an impact investment. And so that it, they're not mutually exclusive. You have to say, what, which vehicle is going to solve which problem at what time? Let's take another example. One of the things that concerns me is when people come in and say, oh, we shouldn't have to have nonprofits in, in food deserts. Uh, we can come up with a creative way to, get, to have, make money and to have those people have food. That's great. And if it works, terrific. And there's a few examples around the country, uh, including, by the way, Randy, you're in Austin, one in Austin. That's a, a good example that you may or may not be aware of it. That's not important. I'm not going to try to push them right now. It's a startup that we're aware of and considering investing in. But the problem a little bit is that a lot of times those for-profit entities come in and they persuade people not to support the on-the-ground nonprofits that are committed to this, those communities long after that for-profit entity does or doesn't make it. And so, so the, the, issue is, um, the issue is not one or the other. The issue is the, the responsibility to decide which of those uh, uses of our resources is going to most effectively and for over the long term solve the needs of the community that's being addressed. I take real issue with people say, oh, well, the for-profit motive is always going to be better. It's not true. How many failures are there in the for-profit world, right? But if you're, if you're not feeding people, that failure is not acceptable. So that I, I, we are personally committed to both. We are, as a family, and when I said that, when I said we, my wife and I, made a commitment a few years ago that we are trying to have 100% of our personal resources, our personal investments committed to both values and impact investments as possible. We're close. We're not quite at 100 percent because we have retirement funds that aren't so touchable. But where we have autonomy, we're very close to 100 percent. But we view that as a complement to our, our philanthropy, not instead of our philanthropy. And, 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 and if you're going to use us as an example, we try to walk, we try to walk what we talk. And so I, I don't think it's one. I think sometimes you're absolutely correct that nonprofits sometimes would do better to turn things over to for-profits. But by the way, take a look at some of the hospital systems and what's happened in terms of they took over and everybody thought that was going to be a more efficient thing if they were bought by for-profit entities. And look at the communities that haven't been served and look at the prices that have gone up and look at what happened with the opioids. So it's not one or the other. It's a matter that, that these are all vehicles that have their place in accomplishing public good. So I'm going to ask you the question that Kent would normally ask you, and he probably hasn't because he knows the answer. But if you look back, Richard, so you're 76, so 70 years ago, the world was a very different place. You're six years old. Were you aware of the fact that philanthropy was, was your future? And if not, what was your journey? Look, I, uh, this is my fifth career. The only thing I became very aware of much later on was I said I had a grandfather who was a philanthropist, but that's all I knew. He had closed his business the year I was born, uh, and he was not a philanthropist like we call it today. He was an old-style philanthropist. He wasn't, uh, some people call it a check-writing philanthropist. He was a feel-good philanthropist. Nothing made him happier than to give money out, 
and he did that. He lived to, he, he lived till 96, and basically uh, by that time he was not functioning, and, and that's all I knew him. But the truth is, he wasn't a philanthropist in the way people are philanthropists today. He was an old-style, feel-good philanthropist. And a lot of the things he gave money to were ridiculous. You know, that, uh, I mean, that, and, and when, when he died, my mother wanted to go see some of the places he had given money to that had his name. We discovered that those places had been sold four or five times over since he had given them 40 years before. Um, so, uh, you know, having said that, I guess that later on in life, I became aware that was an influence. But I started out my career uh, in, at, uh, as, as a faculty member and chaplain at Brown University. Um, I, uh, and I was there um, 11 years. In my 10th year, I got an executive management degree, um, moved on to become an executive in the nonprofit sector, was enticed to, um, to move into the for-profit sector for a few years, um, uh, and was doing some strategy in the for-profit sector. and. Um, I was asked to join one of the very big consulting firms, and I, we realized at the last minute that we had different values. I believe that if you can't implement what you're doing, it's not really strategy. And in those days, we're talking about the 80s, they had different philosophies. By coincidence, so you ask about this, it's an important part of the narrative because it tells a lot. Um, I happened to find myself a guest of the, what was then the West German government uh, in Germany and stayed a few days after and found myself in Berlin on November 9th, 1989, the day the wall came down. So you're not surprised to know that was a life-changing experience. And uh, I came back and I kind of went back into the nonprofit sector and started doing a lot of international things and kind of became an expert in advising communities around the world on allocation of resources to, uh, to young adults, uh, university age and young adults, and was giving a talk in Thessalonica, Greece. Uh, to a European conference, and uh, somebody who had been was functioning as a headhunter for the foundation I ended up heading said, "How'd you like to head a foundation?" Uh, so uh, even though there were all sorts of things that made it kind of the most obvious thing in the world that that's what I would do, frankly, it was because of uh, all these other experiences. And um, and I was the last head of that foundation. It doesn't exist anymore, but was um, uh, you're you're both old enough to have heard of the Seagram Company uh, when it was the largest liquor company in the world, owned Universal. And they sold it to a French company in 2001, 2002, and, it and the foundation, which was known as the Bronfman Foundation, um, closed at that time. There are other Bronfman Foundations that continue to exist, but that was literally and figuratively the Granddaddy Foundation. And uh, so that's, that was the foundation I was heading, and it was uh, quite prominent and large uh, for its time. Then I started doing this. Uh, I decided after that that I was, didn't want to work for anybody again. I was happy to independent. We had some flexibility that uh, while I somewhat, we, in those days still had to work, we didn't have to work full time. And um, my wife and I, my wife is already independent on her own, doing her own consulting. So that's what we did. The teaching, advising, speaking, and also spent a good deal of time on boards, trustee of foundations, leadership roles in some nonprofits nationally and internationally. So that's kind of a, about as quick a, <laughs> a narrative of those uh, 50, 60, 70 years like as, as I could give. That's extraordinary um, to be able to, to tell that story in such a bullet point fashion, but still have some emotion to it. I, I, yeah, it's really moving. Uh, and I, I didn't realize the extent of that. The, the Berlin Wall thing is extraordinary. What a, what a magical thing to be part of in the history of the world. You know, what I find really inspiring about you, you know, thinking about the listeners is 
you're you're like the you know back in the day uh herman hess's siddhartha like this this character that just says hey i'm gonna experience the world i'm gonna flow with it i'm gonna do some things and you're even kind of saying when you make investments i, I i'd like to experience that too i'd like to live i'd like to live through this this money you know and and and, to, and investments and watch things grow and flourish so what is what is your hope for the world? I mean, if if kids ever figure out how to start donating more, um, but what's what's your vision for what the world should be coming up here? Well, look, we're in a very it's a complicated time in the world. Um, my Mirla, who's uh, my wife, and uh, is an environmental activist, and um, we've, I've been to enough international environment conferences and national environment kinds of things that uh, we're in trouble. And uh, a lot of the world is much more willing to acknowledge that than the United States. So philanthropy is the least of it. <laughs> I mean, there's a role that philanthropy can play in all of this. But if you ask about hope for the world, I just hope the world is here. I have a grandson. I don't know what's going to happen with him. Uh, you know, we, we worry about that. The other part I hope for the world, which I do think is related to philanthropy, is I'm very concerned about the shrinking of civil society and, and space for uh, civility. I mean, uh, Randy's in Texas, so uh, we were recording this at a time when just a terrible, uh, the destructive uh, law was approved yesterday uh, about women's rights to choose. And while you can have arguments about it, the idea that it, that it legitimated vigilantism uh, is, is just unconscionable. I, I, I have a little bit of history with this as well, although it is beside the point, but when I was still in graduate school, I was working at, at, at a university on a part-time basis, and this goes back to the 60s, three undergraduates came to talk to me because a friend of theirs had just died in a back alley abortion. Uh, if you think that this is not a, a death sentence for young women that don't have resources, then people are naive. If you want to put it more broadly in terms of philanthropy's role, we, we have to do everything we possibly can to restore civility in the world. Uh, it's not only civil liberties, which are a part of it, but the but but uh, but respect for human beings, the respect that there's talking about this a little bit earlier, the uh, the concept that uh, that people have all sorts of rights, but they're not absolute. Responsibilities are not absolute, but rights are not absolute. And the idea that somehow there's a there's a, a momentum in American society more than other places that somehow says if I want to do it, it doesn't matter what anybody else says. I have that absolute right. There's no ethical system, there's no, ra there's no religious system in the world that gives people the absolute right to do anything you want uh, if, it, if it impacts other people. I mean, in the, the confines of your own home, you probably have 99% rights. Once you step out that door, those rights don't exist. And, and, and so that if you ask me what I, I think is our, has to be our responsibility, we have to do everything possible um, to, to, to restore economic equity, uh, to restore uh, equity toward uh, to, toward groups that have, have, have suffered over the years, or and as we see very recently, uh, that uh, has nothing to do with whether you're a majority or minority. Uh, with, there are more women than men in the world, but yet there are laws that clearly un unfairly impact them. Well, we in philanthropy have a responsibility that if we're serious, un seriously understand systemic challenges to the world, we have to use those resources consciously and and uh, with a sense of purpose to to restore. Where the, where the normal debates can take place. This is not a matter of what level your taxes are. It is an argument that somehow says to be a responsible citizen means you pay taxes. It's not an argument about who, who pays, how much you pay for health care. 
it is an argument that somehow says that no human being living in, a, in, a, in an industrialized society should, should not have health care. And you can argue all sorts of things around the edges of that. But, the, but there are responsibilities that we have in, in our field. So if you ask me what I say looking forward is, it's a time where I think we're in great crisis. And, and, we have, and we're one of the few sectors, and this is where we come back to philanthropy, that has the autonomy to set back and say, we have to use those resources to really sit, look deep as to how we uh, address profound and destructive schisms in, uh, in America, but frankly in other societies as well, which have uh, eroded uh, civil space, civil society, and civil liberties and, and, uh, and speech. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to be melodramatic about it, but I think it's a, it's a profoundly challenging time. So some incredible insights there, uh, Richard. And I think, you know, I've, I've seen your, your blog for some time. You're now on, you know, uh, up into the 400 some pieces of writing that are over at wisephilanthropy.institute. You're obviously you're writing on the topic that was on the tip of my tongue just yesterday. Is that where you want to send people uh, who are listening? Be delighted to do so. The Institute for Wise Philanthropy has its own uh, website, uh, and the blog is called the Wise, Wise Philanthropy Institute blog. And there's, uh, as you're correct, I mean, some of the pieces have been taken off. So even though we're up to number four hundred and eighteen, maybe there's only three hundred and seventy-five pieces there. But there's a <laughs> there's a lot of articles uh, going back there. And the other thing I would say, and and as I say, this is I'm not this is not pushing business. It's really pushing. Uh, I mean, if it's his business, his business, but that's not my main thing. If, if people are really interested in having seminars or workshops or education about this kind of stuff, that's, that's, what, I, that's what I live for, and that's really what I'm committed to, because we, I really do believe that we have a unique role where we sit, and we have a responsibility to use it ethically, wisely, um, and with a level of self-awareness that other sectors just don't have. Well, thank you so much, Richard. It is really remarkable to speak with somebody who has such a deep and profound understanding of human nature and how we need to work together to use our resources to create the sort of impact we truly all want. I think if people stopped and thought about where they want the world to be next year or 10 years' time or 50 years' time, they'd find that they weren't so different in their ideas. And yet, Today we're battling, we're battling the generation of ideas. We're really struggling with it. So I, I love your balanced viewpoint. I love your passion. So thank you so much for spending time with us. My pleasure. And uh, anytime, delighted to share thoughts with you and to participate in these discussions. Thanks so much. Thank you. Really great to talk. Thanks again, Richard. I, I forgot to thank you for your considered opinions on impact investing as a as a form of philanthropy and how society needs both investment in for-profit impact-based businesses as well as non-profit or NGO type organizations. Fabulous to open our eyes and ears to thinking about that concept of needing both. And it was also really interesting, you know, the, the discussions around the edges of the interview, you know, to talk about uh, New York City and about flooding in New York and, and at the end to talk about 
really legacy and, and I, I just have to mention here you're absolutely just glowing words about your wife and your marriage and and how to be honest joyful you seemed when you, you talked about it. that that was remarkable and beautiful uh, and i just wanted to mention that here as well so moving on from philanthropy to other ways that you can make more of yourself so you can share more with others which is a a form of leveraging your $5 philanthropic efforts into $50 or $500 or maybe even $5 million. So I want to suggest that everybody go to crazymba.com, invest a dollar there and just see what they can do for you.